That line snuck up on me in the first service from that song of, if his grace is an ocean, then we're all, we're all sinking. And uh, I think it's very uh, important for us to remember the, the word grace as we go through our text this morning, as we work our way back into 2 Corinthians, but to see it poetically as it was just demonstrated or described in that song, that if God's grace is this ocean that's been provided to us, that the weight of our sin and who we are just kind of causes us to plummet in it because of how badly we need it. So coming back to 2 Corinthians and where we're going for chapters 8 and 9, this idea of the fact that we sink in God's grace is going to be very helpful as a backdrop, if you will. A, a doctrine understanding of God's grace and what he's done for us, what we don't deserve and how we get to walk in it. All of those pieces are very important as we get into the next two chapters. We haven't been in 2 Corinthians since middle of November, and uh, we had things come up, holidays, Advent season, uh, installation, vision uh, sermons, all these other kinds of things, and I've been itching and aching to get back to 2 Corinthians because I miss the, the dynamic and the progress that Paul is spelling out for us with these friends of his, these believers, the people that he's invested his life and his time with, and this friction that started to happen between him and this church that's now away from him, because they started doubting his leadership, his apostolic uh, authority was was in question with these people. And so Paul, not he wasn't on some ego trip, I need you to respect me and you're going to remember who I am. And Jesus appointed me, you know, he didn't, he didn't get hung up on those things. What he knew was that if we're going to build the church, if it's going to uh, uh, survive the future, if it's going to be as Jesus promised, it's going to be stable to the point that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's going to have to be built on the authority of truth. And if you're doubting my message, which is what the, the doubting of Paul's apostleship is, then we have nowhere to go. We're just having a club. And so Paul, looking to reestablish his relationship with these Corinthians, also is reestablishing his apostolic authority so that they would understand that everything that he's saying is given of the Lord and is going to be for the nourishment and the protection and the future of this church. And so it's very important for him to establish this with them. And we studied back in chapter 5 one very important verse, verse 15, where he says the reason that he was doing this, the reason that why the surrender needed to happen, he says, because he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul's MO was to say, Corinthian believers, that we now abandon ourselves, our selfish pursuits, who we are, who we, who we are plagued by being. We walk away from that because he died for us. And so for, for our sake, he died and was raised. And so we no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Now he's going to, as we get into chapter 8, he's going to give them a test. And that test is going to be a very difficult one. So he's going to communicate it very delicately. It's my prayer this morning as we get into these chapters. For the next, uh, this, including this Sunday, the next three weeks. Pastor Gary will be helping us on week three going through this text. Uh, it's my prayer that the delicacy of Paul's delivery to the people he loved is communicated to you as well. This is how he finished the section that we've come up to thus far at the end of chapter 7. He says, I rejoice, Corinthians, because I have complete confidence in you. 
Everything he's going to say from this point forward is not blowing smoke. He's not propping them up. He's not manipulating to get something out of them that he doesn't think that they're capable of completing themselves. He's saying, we've arrived to the point where not only are we relationally good, but now I'm confident in the fact that you get it too. And that we're partners again in this mission. And he means this. So we know that he was striving to straighten out the relationship and reestablish his authority with them. But there was a, there was a practical need that Paul, um, originally started with them that he wanted to see through. And it was almost like he said, all this distraction that we had about the question of my authority, the things that we had to clear up, the, 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 uh, the dysfunction going on in your church, we, we lost sight of the fact that I originally approached you to take part in a collection. That we were going to raise money for the Jewish Christians that were poor and in great need of our financial assistance. So Paul is bringing them back to the point of the letter was, let's get back to the business of contributing to the work of God. We have people that have been suffering in need, and it's been about a year since we've been able to revisit this topic. So now you know why I say we have to keep grace in the backdrop, in the, in the, maybe even in the forefront of our mind as we listen to this, because once again, someone behind a pulpit is talking about money. Ouch. Uncomfortable. Awkward. Controversial. But this is coming right from the text. Don't pick on me. It's the next chapter in the book. But I think you'll be surprised at where this actually goes and what this won't be. Paul has got a point to seeing the collection through. First and foremost, he wants to provide for the needs of those who need it. There are real people with real needs suffering real uh, uh, tragedies and difficulties that he knows the people, if he connects them, can actually relieve their suffering. So he has that as as a, a major point. But because he's Paul and because he's led by the Holy Spirit and because this church is not his but the Lord's, there's always deeper reasons for why he's challenging them. Overall, he wants to see evidence of the unity between Jewish believers and Greek believers. He's saying, can you imagine the, the testimony and the message that gets spinning around our region if we start taking uh, the, 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 the believers in Christ who are of Greek descent and pro- predominantly in their churches and they're looking after the needs of, of those who are Jewish, who are poor and broken, and we start, and then later on in our letter, he's going to say, and then they start giving back and reciprocating that? He goes, can you imagine the message that starts to send? The testimony that as people meet at the foot of the cross, they start getting rid of all the other silly things that divide us. So Paul has this in mind, and you can hear this coming through in his instruction. But he also wants to send them a challenge. He he knows that he's brought them along. He knows that they've had a lot of surrender they have to go through, a lot of growing up they have to do. So he wants to demonstrate or see some evidence of their maturity. And he wants to see it through grace-motivated obedience and not something out of compulsion, not something out of, like, Paul's really coming down on us. You know, he's like smacking us around with that authority thing now that that's reestablished. Now he's going to come in with the heavy. He wants to see that that we're doing the relationship part first, that we're establishing the, the brokenness in our own hearts and the gospel meets us there before we even start talking about raising a single penny or whatever it is they use for currency back in that time that this would be grace-motivated obedience, not an act of compulsion. 
Paul knows that he's calling them into doing the thing that, that comes from the heartbeat of his God, that as we understand the nature of God and who is he, we see this outpouring and this, uh, this flow of compassion that comes from him. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 58, uh, uh, quoting his God says, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the, loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? He says, we, we're doing this not because it's going to satisfy perhaps a, a, an outward poster where people can go, oh, those Christians take care of each other. That's a great byproduct of it. We're doing this because it comes from the heart of God. And this is why the ministry at faith has been moved with compassion. We have so many, we were able to, to put on a really cool video here, a demonstration of one of those things, but there's so many pockets and corners of the ministry here at faith that exercise such great compassion for the least of these and those that are in need. The reason why we do that is because we get it from our God. So why does this matter? Why do we look at Second Corinthians chapter eight together and seek to apply it in 2020. Why does this matter to us? And that it matters to us because money is the problem and the item that we all experience. It is so near and dear to our lives. You didn't get here this morning without some expense of money. You didn't feed yourself this week. I'm assuming you all did that without some expense of money. You are clearly all clothed here. I want to thank you for that. Appreciate that. So you didn't do that necessarily for free. Money comes in and out of our lives. It's this current of currency that just kind of blows through everywhere. Everywhere we move. And and greed isn't always expensive. I'm tempted so often to look at those who have more and think they must just love money. That's how they accumulated it. And then I find that I think about the money I don't have probably just as much as they think about the money they do. So here's what's not in the text and what Paul is saying in chapter eight. This is not a message about tithing. That's nowhere to be found in this. There's no instruction on amount. In fact, that's the beauty of this is that it's absent from the text that this isn't a debate about do we give on our gross income versus our net income. That's not there. There's so many other avenues and tentacles, if you will, of giving in the church that we could talk about that I am trying not to force into this text because it's not there. Also, there isn't in this a definition of the needy. That is a very controversial thing in our day and age. I would help, but I don't think that person really needs my help. Or how do we define who's truly poor and that kind of thing? That's not here. Paul just says, we're raising money for the people that need it. And then he moves on. Also, what's not present in this text is an emotional response or an emotional plea to give that which you can't. Maybe even, dare I say, that which you shouldn't, depending on timing and circumstances. This isn't one of those things where Paul wanted his readers to wake up the next day after some emotional outpouring and a big movement of let's give it all. Let's throw it all in the middle. And you wake up the next day. What did we do? We gave up our family car. Well, how are we going to get home? As unfortunately, so many ministries can be guilty of. It's not here in this passage. Here's a statement that I'd like you to take home with you. It's in your notes if you happen to get notes on your way in. Simply says this, God's generous heart is demonstrated through God's generous people. 
Our text is in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. We're going to pause after the first five verses, but let's get started together. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Let that math equation blow your mind for a second. Uh, In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, huge amounts of joy, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What we see here first and foremost is that generosity is being demonstrated through or by humility. The the Macedonian churches made up of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, all these churches that Paul is deeply acquainted with, he's intimately invested in, he's stayed in their homes perhaps, he's eaten at their tables, he understands the depth of their poverty, he knows what they're coming from, and he says, these guys have all gotten together because they get it. They don't think more of themselves or less of themselves, they really just don't think of themselves. And the scripture here is saying that they were tested with affliction. And some of us might look at that and go, well, they were tested almost like um, Paul references earlier in the in the letter. He says, we were afflicted on every side, but not crushed. This is what's going on here with the with the Macedonian churches, too. They are being squeezed and pressured, but not from a, a, a motivation to see them fail. Think of it almost like you're, uh, I, I tried thinking of a fruit we do this in and you'll, you'll come up with it and you'll tell me later and I'll, it'll be too late and I can't share it with everybody. But I'm thinking about that. What's the thing that you would crack open and there's this gem inside and you've got to put pressure on, what, did someone already have it? Huh? Avocado? Ugh. No, I said a gem. What are you, Tom Brady? Anyway. No, that's, you know, you know what your gem is. The idea is that you would put the pressure and the squeeze to it in order to get the good that's on the inside, not to squash it beyond use. But, but that's the affliction. That is the test that these Macedonian churches, these poor churches were going through because the afflictor, the one who was putting the pressure on them knew there was something good inside. And you just wait and see when I put the pressure on this and put the screws to them and everything, what everyone else is going to experience is this overflowing abundance of blessing. Watch and see what I'm going to do with even the the least of these, the poorest of these. It was intended to reveal something good. And to get an understanding of their extreme poverty, I'd seen that, that where we get this word bathysphere, I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but it, it's, it's uh, referring to this vessel that drags along kind of the bottom of the ocean. They used it in the early 30s, and it was this, this, this tanky kind of thing, and it would just go along the bottom, weighted down, and just moving along the ocean floor, basically. And Paul's using something uh, similar to where we get that English word, to convey these guys, what we would say, were scraping the bottom of the barrel. Their depth of their poverty was so broke and so, 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 so nothing that, that what they came up with, what they produced, gave Paul an incredible reaction. 
It's hard for us to understand how they might be participating in grace or in gifts because you and I are just kind of programmed over over conditioning over time, perhaps, that we see that God's blessing shows up in our abundance, in our wealth or in our our prosperity or the things that we can say. It's so common for us to say, I'm so blessed, even in the good things, I'm so blessed to have all my family here with me. I'm so blessed to have this house that stays warm in these cold months. I'm so blessed to have this job that provides for our needs. And we see God's blessing, and rightfully so. I'm not saying stop thanking him for those things. But we very rarely say, I am so blessed by the fact I got a scrape and claw just to survive a day. We wouldn't look at God's blessing showing up in that way. Somehow, some way, these Macedonian believers had come to that place. So Paul is using them as a great example. How do they get there? Paul gives us a clue way, way back many, many, many months ago when we were studying chapter one, verse five, he says, for we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So through Christ, we share abundantly, or we could say lavishly in comfort too. They had tapped into a secret. They understood some of the things that Paul was saying as he opened his letter. The secret was that giving away what, what we don't rightfully own is freeing because it detaches us from the cares of this world. They knew they were created to live for something bigger than themselves, so they expected less in this life because they knew what they were promised for all of eternity couldn't compare to whatever suffering they had to go through now. So experientially, they were able to move forward with generosity because of their humility, which was built on their experience. They were able to relate to this. They've been brought through it themselves. That's why we've titled this series for the next few weeks, More Than Money. We're not here talking about money problems as though they're isolated. In the same way that when we're talking about marriages, we can't talk about communication problems as though they're isolated. Or in the same way we, we talk about our work problems, we can't say I have an employment issue or something. The, the problem is, is that money is a revealer of something that goes on deeper in our lives. I want to quote uh, Paul Tripp in his uh, excellent and, and, and fairly little. I always have to give you the size of the books I'm recommending because some people go, I don't want to read a book. This one's not too big. It's called Redeeming Money. Our money problems begin with viewing money in isolation from living with a sense of ownership that is never true of a creature. Our problem in so much of our lives, money happens to be the example of it, but we could say so many other aspects of the lives that we, is that we believe that we own a particular thing, even though we are created beings. Everything that we own or think we own is in relationship to the, the creator of our lives and the one who really does own it all. And in one study that we do sometimes going through our membership class, they have this really helpful phrase. They say that to understand our relationship to money is we understand that we are God's stewards only looking after the things that he's given us to take care of. This is what the Macedonians had come to understand. They had also built their generosity on passion. This is the reaction that Paul has. This is really kind of cool if you look at it. They, he says they overflowed with this. What's going on here in the language is this liberal assistance. It's just like, take it all, take it all. What else do you want? Keep going, keep going, piling it on. Paul says they started off by giving to their means, which was mind-blowing enough. He says, but I can attest to you that they actually gave contrary 
to their abilities. This isn't just beyond like, wow, they give more than I expected. He said they brought things to the middle of the room, if you will, and said, take all this. And I'm going, where'd you get all this? I lived with you. I've, I've ate with you. I've, I've, I've stayed in your homes. I've worshiped in your churches. You don't have this stuff. Where did it come from? He's trying to convey this mind boggling, uh, participation that they had. I almost, I almost picture the conversation going like this. Paul is saying, look, guys, I, I appreciate your hearts. This is amazing, you know, but I, I can't take this from you. And the intensity that's portrayed here from the Macedonians is almost a response of saying, you can't stop us. You said there was a need. We understand the need because we go through it ourselves. We're helping Paul, whether you like it or not. I don't know if you've ever encountered that kind of generosity, but it's humbling. It's overwhelming. I've been the beneficiary of that far too many times in my life and want to strive to emulate being that in response and find myself just not quite there as much as I've seen it in other people. We jump down a few verses and he says to the Corinthian churches in a sense of comparison here, he says, this benefits you. If you take part in this collection, Corinthians, this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Remember, he's saying, I know we've come a long way. A year ago when I sent Titus to you, he started talking to you about this idea of a collection and you started getting on board. You started saying, no, I think we want to take part in this. We want to do this with you. He said, you had a desire to do it. And he's not knocking them down by comparing them with the Macedonians, but he's saying, if you had that kind of desire, I'm just telling you what other desires have looked like. So, so you have your desire and you have to figure out how genuine it is because I'm telling you right now what's going on in Macedonia is mind blowing. The Macedonians built this also on surrender. Paul gives us a clue. Where does this come from? He says they gave themselves first to the Lord. The reason why it's so easy for ministries, churches to manipulate this conversation of giving is because there is an aspect of most of our lives where we want to help something or we want to get this monkey off our back or we want to be um, engaged in a thing that other people are doing. There's all kinds of reasons. And if you can tap into that mixed up kind of misplaced motivation for doing something, you can get anything you want out of people. Most of us scratch our heads and we think, how do these 1-800 number ministries and stuff get so much? Because so many people are carrying this misdirected sense of guilt over the issue, not, not a lot of good teaching on it. But for the most part, it's coming from somewhere inside. I just want to contribute. I just want to be involved in something bigger than me. And so you get the wrong person to draw that out of them and, and lead it in the wrong direction. It can be dangerous. Fortunately for us, Paul has an example of the Macedonians who had their priorities in order. They understood something and he shares it with us kind of parenthetically here in verse nine. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich is another demonstration or explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but using the money metaphor for us because it's pertinent to the topic that he's talking to the Corinthians about. And he says, here's where the gospel has shown up in our lives, is that Jesus Christ had vast wealth, infinite wealth, all the praise, honor, and glory, and yet for our sakes became poor. 
Generosity is demonstrated by grace. Grace is a benefit to others. It's giving a favor to somebody else or giving a gift. What it is, though, is it's the opposite of law. It's the opposite of works. It's the opposite of obligation. So many of us have have been drawn into a moment of wanting to participate because of an image on a TV screen or because a movement uh, is happening and you just want to be a part of it and there's a compulsion or something. And then we always weigh out in the fact, like, am I doing this for the right reasons? What do I do this for? There's always this battle of law and grace going on in our hearts and our minds. And, and fortunately for us, miraculously for us, the Lord Jesus Christ understands that battle because he moved through that in his act of grace, to become our motivation in that. We often define grace as being unmerited favor, which it definitely is. It's a a gift given to us that we did not earn. But it's more than that. It's a, a radical view of life. It's a radical view of relationship to God. It's a rejection of our own self-confidence, our own self-sufficiency. And that becomes a way of life by trusting Christ to first and foremost show, first and foremost show us the grace that we need. We've been encountered by His grace. We've been wrecked by His grace. But then we also need Him to be grace for other people in our lives. Uh, Lord, I don't have the sufficient compassion to meet these people's needs. Lord, I don't have the sufficient trust or faith to be able to provide out of the things that I don't feel like I can give up. I can't do that. You're going to have to move through me in order for that to take place. That's that wrestling, that interaction with the freeing gospel of Jesus Christ. There's an interesting prayer and conversation going on in John 17 where Jesus is speaking to his heavenly father and he says this one little line in there that, that should really make us pause and, and, and feel as though we're looking in on a conversation we shouldn't be looking in on. Jesus says to his father, he says that it, it, the experience of the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, What Jesus is conveying to his father is kind of like a, we know what we're both talking about here. And other people looking in are like, boy, it seems like there's an inside line of dialogue we're not catching. You know how sometimes you talk to your friend and you like, remember the good old days? And you're like, oh yeah. And then you kind of, you know each other's picturing the moments and the experiences. Jesus says to his father, he says, the glory that I experienced with you back before I came and did this. And there's this kind of like, yep, I know exactly what you mean. We have no ability, no idea to how we can even anticipate all that Jesus left behind to be born in such humble uh, uh, fixings and trappings. And all that we celebrate with the incarnation around the Christmas season would blow our minds even more if we had even an iota of understanding of what he left behind in order to come and be present with us. Jesus even comments on this when he is observing in Luke 21. He looks up and and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, out of their riches, out of their excess, out of their supply. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. If you and I only ever give out of our abundance or our surplus and we don't pass through this same experience, if you will, that Jesus did in order to become poor or become poverty for us, 
If we pass over this, then we're missing a lot of the experience that the gospel affords us. This is how you and I relate to Christ is not just to give out of our surplus, but to be willing to be led into places of inconvenience and suffering in order to obey him. Generosity is demonstrated by grace. It is also demonstrated by and through each other. I love Paul's fairness in this. He gets very, very practical here. And remember, I said he's going to do this with a tone of delicacy to him. So he's going to lay this out carefully and he's going to do it sensitively. So let's see if we can pick this up as we go through these verses. Picking up in verse six, he says, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness in our love for you, he's saying, you guys have all these things going so well for you. You're smart, you're compassionate, you're, you're mature, you're getting it, you're growing. And he's not being facetious. He's saying you excel in all of these things. He says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Don't taint and ruin everything else that you're about by being unwilling to see this through. Verse eight, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Do you see what money is? Money is the great revealer of our hearts. It shows our our genuineness of our faith. In verse 10, we repeat this. He says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. I know you've got it in you, Corinthians, is what he's saying. I just want to see your reputation. I want to see your impact. I want to see everything else be brought to completion by you seeing this through. But here's where he gets extremely fair and relatable. Verses 11 and 12, this is something that is built on proportion. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. That little phrase, according to, I look at it this way. God wants us to give from our heart, not from our wish list. Or he judges us based on what we give from what we have, not on, well, my intentions were good. He's saying, no, this is, I'm asking you to do according to what you already have. Don't stretch this out. Don't go and uh, jump through hoops and make some crazy attempts to, to overdo yourself. I'm simply asking you to take part in this based on what you've already been blessed with. According to. I have to ask myself, I'm going to ask you the same painful question. Does the way I arrange my financial world allow me to act on my feelings of compassion or does it hinder me? I, I can tell you so often my heart is in something. My emotions are there. I always say, you know, if I had a million dollars, I'd be, you know, taking care of this person, doing that, but I don't, I don't have that. So does the Lord base this in my life based on my wish list or on my intentions or what I do with what I do have? And have I backed myself into a corner or have we backed ourselves into a corner of a society that, that encourages debt 
and the more you make, the more you spend and those kinds of things that it limits our ability to act when the Holy Spirit is really moving in us, take care of this person, meet this need. I would love to, but I can't. Maybe the Lord's okay with me just saying I would love to. Here's what he says in verse 13. There's a teamwork aspect that this is built on. He says, for I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, what he's saying here is, I'm not saying that because you guys are the cash cow, these we're encouraging people to just keep sponging off you. He says, I'm not saying this is a one-way street. Verse 14, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. This isn't just about money equality. It isn't just we as a ministry gave money to those people over there so when they make money, they can give it back to us. Here's our weird way of thinking about supply and grace and the gift that the Lord um, builds in all of us to be able to contribute is that we think so often about money being the supply of all acts of grace so even a, think about what the Corinthians are going through here. We who are more established, probably a little bit wealthier, Paul is trying to trick us into saying, well, trust me, if you give it to them now, they'll give it back. Corinthians aren't idiots. They're like, these guys will never be able to give back exactly what we'd be able to raise. I mean, I appreciate the fact that they made this surprising collection and everything, but if we got really serious, I mean, if you were doing the little thermometer on the side, you know, to show how far the giving is going. I think we could probably blow their doors off. So the Corinthians might be thinking in their mind, Paul, seriously, you're saying that we should be motivated to give because one day we might need it back. We're not going to be in those same circumstances. But because we have a tendency to see blessing through material wealth and, and prosperity, that we sometimes fail to think that even if my bank account never changes, who knows what I'm going to go through in life, that somebody who might be poorer than me, but more spiritually rich may come back in a reciprocal way to minister to me, to bless my heart, to be just the person I needed to at the right time that I never saw coming because they're not on my social stratosphere. So Paul is saying it may not be necessarily a dollar for dollar exchange, but as you give to that with the things that you do have, Corinthian church, you have some money. So let's send it there. They can help you. And then you never know what kind of ministry they send back to you. This is the way the whole process needs to work is what Paul is saying. Then he throws in this little phrase at the end. He quotes Exodus 16 when he says, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is as God is supplying the need to his, his children, the complainers about we're not eating enough. And so he starts raining down manna on them. And I like to imagine those are munchkins. That's just where my mind goes is that the Lord has, has blessed all of his people with an abundance of munchkins. And I have a hard time imagining they'd ever complain about that. And what's going on here is the proportion because the manna perishes overnight. So you can work as hard as you want. You can gather up and be like, I'm going to be able to feed my family with all these munchkins for the rest of the week. And then they wake up the next morning and it's all destroyed. It's spoiled. It doesn't last. The point here is as we look after one another, I might be more aggressive. I might have an, an eager love for munchkins and I'm going to go scoop it all up. And then I'm going to look at my abundance. I'm going to see that the little old lady over here that couldn't work that hard didn't have as much. And I'm going, well, why am I hanging on to this? It's all going to be dead tomorrow anyway. Why don't you have some of mine? 
So she comes over and gets because the Lord supplies our daily needs. And so I can't outpace him. I can't get ahead of him. He says, you're going to rely on me day to day. So if you work hard to gather because you have the ability, you might be able to take care of somebody who can't work that hard. And that's the way it comes back around. These are very difficult concepts for us to accept in an economy-driven culture. And so we're just getting below the surface. We're just getting into these. And I'll save the really controversial stuff for Pastor Gary because everybody loves him. So (laughs) we'll make him say all the ugly stuff. Here's how I'd conclude our time this morning. Just a few extractions from the text. Feeling bad for somebody won't get the job done. We should not be resting on our intentions as God's people. I believe that what we're seeing from the text and some of the other verses that we use, that God is less concerned with amount than he is our action. I'm heeding my own warning. I encourage you to do the same. Don't wait for more. If I just made more, I would give more. Don't believe your heart that way. This comes from a surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ with what we have now before we'd ever be blessed with more and thinking that that would happen. There's also a real important piece of all of this that we have to just wrap our heads and hearts around is that letting go of this material life piece by piece, all of its trappings, all of its empty promises, all the things that we can feel and see and smell and all those kinds of things keep us from practicing living in a kingdom that we can't all see, that keep us from practicing for all of eternity living in the Lord's kingdom because we haven't let go of all the things that this world promises and tries to provide us. So we start learning to let these things go piece by piece. And it is a challenge, but it is perhaps the most poignant challenge to learn how to start letting that go in the area of our generosity. So that's what we have for this morning. Let's stand, if you would, please. Let's pray about these things, prepare our our thinking and our hearts for the weeks to come. Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, for putting the Macedonians on display for us. I thank you, Lord, for what their hearts were able to produce and that Paul thought fitting to use them as an example for us. Um, Lord, they are challenging for sure. And they're encouraging. I'm sure they're rare. I'm sure they're unique, but they're real. So I pray, Lord, that we would look to their example and ask for the same grace that you bestowed upon them to be evident in us and that our motivation, our encouragement to participate, our our desire to not be held back from doing the right thing in the kingdom would be just as clear in our hearts as it was in theirs. Thank you, Lord, for how much you love us. Thank you for or leaving all of your riches behind to become poor for our sakes. And Lord, it's because of that we know that we are spiritually rich when we are in you. So thank you, Lord, for providing us for what really counts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.